something that we do as veterans is we compare our trauma with each other for the good or for the bad. Like, screw you, dude. You don't know what type of day I'm having because my worst day is nothing like your worst day. And I, I, I kind of carried that on my shoulders, especially dealing with, with civilians, right? I'm not going to allow myself to have trauma, but I do know that my trauma is worse than yours, right? It's just a shitty place to be. And as soon as you realize that it, it, it's not apples to apples, you're not comparing things. Like my secretary, 50, I don't know, two or three year old woman, uh, mother, three kids. Who am I to say my, my, I've got this trauma and you, there's no way you can understand me. I don't know her. You know, I don't know if her, she watched her dog get killed five years ago and that had an impact on her. Right. And to her, that's just right. as traumatic as the guy who works at the air force gym in Balad and hears a round go off, I guess. Um, or me watching a guy with a SA seven burn up in the tube as he's trying to kill me. Right. It's so personal to every single person. And that's, um, it's just the way it is. So, and, and when you accept that, when you accept that you, you, you no longer, at least I don't treat myself as bad as I treated myself. That was me. <laughs> Normally I have a different guest on, but this is going to be kind of a, uh, a strange episode to do an intro for. Um, so I'll just intro me like I'm my guest. That was Kevin Sullivan, former Air Force C-130 navigator turned podcaster. My story next, but first, you know the drill. We've got some things that we got to discuss. Um, first off, this episode was not my idea. I listened to my fellow Irreverent Warrior hikers, and they kept bringing up the idea that no one knows who I am. I show up at hikes, I put a mic in your face, and folks are like, who the hell are you? So here I am. I procrastinated and procrastinated, and then I finally did the interview with um, with Jeremy Walton, uh, and then I sat on the recording. Jeremy can attest to this because we probably recorded this three months ago, uh, and I'm finally going to release it. I was actually, I was going to release it on the one-year anniversary, which was a couple weeks ago, but um, the schedule just didn't work out that way, so I'm releasing it today. Day. We had our first post-COVID hike down in Wilmington, North Carolina. A lot of people enjoyed that. I hear, I hear the weather sucked, um, but what can you do about that? I mean, it was rainy. Who cares? I think folks were just happy to get out and to get these things going again. We have a ton of hikes coming up. Of course, head over to irreverentwarriors.com to see all of those, but I'll do the ones that are coming up in July if my computer works here. There we go. So we have July 11th is Indianapolis. July 18th is going to be Reno, Nevada. July 25th is going to be Lincoln, Nebraska. July 25th, also in that. Remember, we're trying to cram a bunch of these hikes all in before the end of the year because of COVID. So we're going to have a bunch of hikes on the same day. So um, July 25th, Philadelphia. July 25th, Charlotte. I know that's in my neck of the woods, but I'm actually going to be in Erie that weekend, guys. Come on, Charlotte organizers. You should have called me and asked me what my schedule was. I'm going to be up in Erie on July 25th, so I won't be able to make that one. What else? Uh, 21 Gun is going weekly very soon. So we were going to do this back in March, and we all know the shitstorm that happened. Uh, but now we're actually doing it. We're, we're teaming up with... Uh, Eric Tanzi over at Instill Distillery, and we're building a set over there with Jeremy Walton, uh, Paul Cardenas, and Brandon. Dude, Brandon, I can't say your last name, Traster. He's going to be our, our video editor. Uh, so that's coming up real soon. Keep her out for that. We're going to start filming, I think, second week in July, and then we'll have those going out, and then we're going to go weekly. We're going to do it this time. I'm very, very excited because um, it's a tricky thing to do, and I think we've worked hard enough to, to get to that point i think that's all head over to 21gun.net spell it out 21gun.net for everything 21gun head over to irreverentwarriors.com for all the latest upcoming hikes and all that good stuff um that's all i have and without further ado my interview you might want to sit down for this this is the new star let's go Still you don't wanna embrace me because of my face in the state of it. 
So welcome everybody. We have Kevin Sullivan, our voice and face behind Twenty One Gun Podcast. Welcome to the Thunderdome. It's your turn. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like I'm pretty sexy right now because I am wearing silky shorts. Uh, we are on video, and uh, I'm I'm literally doing the what was that movie with the lady who uncrossed her legs and flashed oh, everyone? Uh, oh my lord, Sharon Stone. <laughs> Sharon Stone, right? Anyways, fatal attraction? fatal attraction. Yeah, I'm giving Jeremy the fatal attraction uh, view right now, but I, but I think they, I can't get comfortable. I can't get more comfortable. All right, here, let me shift. Comfortable, that's that's a new one. All right, okay, so go hit me. I'm ready. Right, so welcome everybody. Uh, so my first question is, uh, just kind of jump right out the gate, dude. Now, what's your primary reason for joining the military, and what kind of fulfillment did you receive, like, like while you were serving? So. You know, I, I wish I had the story of like, I saw the towers go down and I was like, I'm going to go out and fight some terrorists or, or, you know, like our grandparents and saw the Pearl Harbor and, and decide to fight for my country. The truth is, uh, you know, I grew up with uh, a grandfather who was uh, injured from a dive bomber out in Bari, Italy back in, uh, I think that was 42. Uh, another grandfather who was in the, uh, I think the 501st Parachute Infantry Reg- Regiment or 506, crap, I don't remember which one it is. Uh, and he broke his leg actually before they jumped into France. So literally, if he hadn't have broken his leg, I wouldn't be here today. Um, all the oh. way back to, I mean, our, our lineage in military service goes all the way back to my, my great, great grandfather and probably further back because we found a pin uh, in an attic of a relative relative's house that was daughter of the revolution or daughters of the revolution. And so, so it's like, it's, I guess it's DNA is in there, but I grew up and man, I used to just watch like all the old school, um, war movies. Like, um, I'm trying to think of, you know, the, the, uh, dirty dozen, um, the great escape and all that. And I always, part of me was always like, man, that just seems like, that just seems like something I want to do. I always had this kind of like adventurous side to me, um, but the, in the same breath, I didn't have I didn't have a clear plan. When I was about eighteen, you know, I went through the whole ASVAB and then being visited right. by I remember the Marine recruiter, um, the Army recruiter, and I don't know. I I I was kind of unsure of myself at that age, and I wasn't sure you know if that's that's really what I wanted to do. So instead, I went into college and literally. It's probably the the worst four years of my life. Really? Why is that? I just, I didn't have any aim, any drive. I didn't know what I was there for. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, you're, you're old enough that, you know, you can go out and drink and party, but you're still young enough that you don't know, like, you know, what, what, what am I going to do with my life? And, and I just kind of went through four years just in a big question mark. And I got out uh, of college. I, I, I mean, I looked back on it. I was like, what did I do for the last four years? I don't, I didn't learn how to build bridges. You know, I didn't learn how to um, wire a house or I didn't learn plumbing or I didn't learn engineering. I didn't learn any of that shit. I just got a degree and then I sat there and I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm 22 years old and I have the rest of my life in front of me and I have no clue what I'm going to do. And it's the same feeling I had when I was 18. So it got me no closer to any, anything. And so I took the first job that was offered to me and it was uh, just an office job. I always like to say, I think it was um, Fight Club where he said he lived in a 40-story filing cabinets for 20-somethings. For and that's what I worked at. I, I worked in a cubicle that was like three feet by four feet in downtown Boston. I had a big beer belly. I was just unhealthy. I was unfulfilled. And uh, here's, the, here's the funny thing. We, it was the Tall Ships Weekend. And keep in mind, during this whole thing, in the back of my mind, I always had that, you know, gosh, I wish I was part of something bigger. So we went down, me and my buddies, after work, and we sat at a, a pub, um, and all these sailors come walking down the street from all over, right? They're sailors from, right. from Great Britain, from, there was Russian sailors, and they're all partying with each other. And the girls are all over these guys. And I'm sitting there with my stupid tie and my stupid khakis, and I'm looking over at them, and like, those guys they're, they're doing what I want to do. I'm looking around at the shitheads that I'm with and I'm like, that's what I want to do. So literally, literally the next day I went to the recruiting station and I was like, I was like, let's do this. Let's, I went up to the, um, the Navy guy cause I had 250 years of Navy history in my family. 
Um, a lot of time, man. What's that? It's a lot of time. I know. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to do Navy. So I go up to him and I'm like, hey, my name's Kevin Sullivan. Um, I, have a, I have a degree, so I want to be an officer and I want to blow shit up. And the Navy guy's like, eh, dude. He's like, he's, like, he's like, first off, because uh, I was probably 195 pounds. I don't know if, to, for, if you don't know me, that's probably 20 or 30 pounds heavier than I am normally. And, uh, you know, unshaven, although I'm unshaven now, but I just didn't look the part of someone that was ready to go and blow stuff up. Right. And it was prior to the war on terror. So they weren't really looking for anyone. They weren't looking for officers. And he basically told me I could, I could maybe enlist. I could maybe get into officer school. I'll probably be a freaking desk jockey somewhere. And the air force guy is sitting behind me and he goes, he goes, Hey, do you ever hear of attack P? I was like, no. And then the Navy guy's rolling his eyes. So, so I go over to him and he's like, yeah, check this out. Air force, um, beautiful, uh, bases, you know, you, you, you top of the line equipment, you know, we get, you know, he was just kind of selling me on this thing. And he was right. like, and then we have these things called battlefield field airmen. So you get all this high tech shit, but you can play all the army stuff and blow stuff up and work with the army and call in airstrikes. And I'm like, dude, I'm sold. I want to do that. Let's do that. Can I do that now? Can I leave tomorrow? And he's like, all right, well, just put in a package and whatever. Right. Slow down. Let's get this figured out. first. Yeah. So I put in a package uh, and here's that. Remember that whole thing about me doing shitty in, in college? I, I think I graduated oh, yeah. like a two, five or two, six, three, uh, which that's my GPA. That's like what a C. <laughs> uh, yeah. About a C average. I was selected. Um, I was like, I don't remember the numbers, but let's say they select 200 officers to go into the class. I was like number 199. And at the time, Maxwell, uh, where the, the, the officer's training school is, was they were rebuilding a, um, one of some of the barracks. So they, all they had room was for 150. So he's like, yeah, yeah he's like, well, you, you got in, but we don't have room for you. So you can next year. And I'm thinking a whole nother year sitting in this, this shitty, uh, job and just getting fatter yeah and he's like you can wait till next year and reapply and you might not get in um he said or there's an or he's like over the next six months you can go to university of new hampshire and check in once a week uh and go to their rotc class uh you know we'll send you to boot camp and we'll do all that stuff and then you come back and you finish off this this semester whatever it was two semesters i guess it was a school year uh up there and i was like and then in the summertime, you'll, you'll, um, you'll become a, an officer. And I was like, all right, right, yeah, let's do that. So, so it was, it was probably one of the best six months of my life because, uh, I, I shipped off to boot camp, and then I came back and, uh, I basically just, uh, I think I substitute taught, I bartended and then I went up to, uh, to the school like once a week and, you know, I was probably 23 or 24. So I didn't, I didn't care. I mean, it was just, it was really, really easy. It was an easy, it was called a one year officer, a session program that only lasted from 2000 to 2001. But the funny, the, the weird thing about it is I was home right after boot camp. It was like two weeks or something. And September 11th happened. Oh man, it's right after. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, I was actually excited. I was like, all right. I mean, I, I wasn't, you know, it, it sucked. Obviously getting attacked sucked. But when you're going in the military, I was like, shit, now things are going to get real. Uh, and I was like, I'm actually going to do something, you know, I'm not just going to travel the world or whatever. Um, so yeah, I had a good, had a good, uh, I guess that was September. So it was 2002. I, I became a, an officer and I was, I was selected or I was supposed to go to the TAC P pipeline, which there's a different name for it. Remember this is freaking one so 19 years ago. I don't remember, right. uh, if, if attack P knows this email me, cause you go as an officer, I think it's a combat resource officer, CRO or something like that. And then, okay. so you go through this, this weird pipeline and the, the guy who is in charge of billets for, for where you're going, he comes up to me and he's like, he's like, Hey, we have a, a, a flying job open. And I was like, okay. never considered flying an airplane. And I was like a pilot. I'm not, I mean, that's like, it's like 10 years right off the bat, right? You're, if you do pilot, you're stuck for 10 years. He's like, no, you're a navigator. And I was like, I'm like, I, I really want to blow stuff up. You know, <laughs> stuff's getting real. And I, I kind of want that role. And he's like, B1, B1 bombers, man. You can blow shit up or F-15Es or the AC-130 gunship. And I was like, the AC, what? 
and he tells me all about this thing. Because remember, I wasn't really spun up as an Air Force geek. Right. Uh, I didn't know all the platforms that they had. And he tells me about the AC-130 gunship, and I'm like, okay, I'll do it. Get me on that airplane, and yes, let's do that. And he's like, well, all right, you know. So they sent me off to uh, to flight school. So literally, I was AWOL at my first assignment while I was actually present at my new assignment because I started getting all these letters uh, and they hadn't, the, the, the wires had crossed. So I was uh, the, wherever the TAC P school was, I think down in, in um, uh, Texas, I wasn't there. And I was actually like two hours down the road or whatever it is, 45 minutes down the road at the, at the flight school. And that was really, dude, I'm going to tell you, it, it, like imagine someone comes up to you and says, Hey, uh, next week, do you want to go down the pipeline to fly airplanes? And you're like 23, you're not married. You're like, fuck it, let's do it. And then it was just, it was very, very cool. Very, very exciting. Like to show up at a, at a operational air station and like, um, you know, get my barracks room, which was maybe 300 yards off an active runway. And then, you know, I, I never wore a flight suit. And so when I get to my first duty station, I go to the, the, whatever the supply, they're giving me flight suits and I'm putting this shit on. And I'm like, I felt like the biggest poser. Like I didn't feel like I belonged there at all. I'm like, who am I? People go, people go four years in the Academy. People go, um, four years at ROTC and they work their ass off to get a flying billet. And they just offer me one out the door. And remember, nine months ago, they weren't even going to let me in the, <laughs> in the Air Force. So it was just crazy. It was crazy. That's yeah. awesome. And so during your time in, what what was your job? What did you do during your time in service? So my first job was 11 Mike, 12 Mike, bra, 12, Jesus. I don't remember what my MOS was. Um, it was uh, Air, Airframe Navigator or... Uh, airlift navigator, but I think it's an 11 Mike Bravo or 12 Mike Bravo. Uh, I think 11 was student and 12 was who gives a shit. So yeah, my, my first job was learning to fly and that took me two years, believe it or not. Um, I mean, you get in that pipeline and you're in classes all day long. You're learning about aerodynamics. You're learning about aircraft engines. You're learning about performance. You're learning about Bernoulli's principle, all these freaking physics thing, physics things. And I was way out of my league because I had a history background and I'm like, I had to go home and study my ass off. And, and, you know, cause like a lot of these guys who came in were private pilots and stuff. Um, and so it's like, it was just so surreal because, you know, like I said, six months earlier, this wasn't on my radar. And now I'm flying in a freaking airplane. It was just so weird. Go from um, college in the plane, man. That's, that's a big change. Yeah. And it, I mean, it was, it, it was crazy. I had like three or four just best buddies that were in, in navigator school with us. And, uh, they were top of their class and I was probably right in the middle. And when it comes down to selecting your airframe, they have this night where you just get hammered and they give you, you know, where you're going to go and stuff. And they all got special operations. And remember, yeah. I wanted, I wanted the AC-130. I wanted to be an air commando. That was like my, my goal. If I can't be TAC-P, I still want to be in the special ops community. Right. And so I get C-130 slicks, which is like, it's still, it all depends as, a, as an aviation purist. Flying a slick C-130 is like flying a B-17. I mean, it's four props. You're, you're low level. It's a freaking cool platform. But it's not special ops. I didn't get the special ops slot. Now, now this is a pipeline to special ops. You go to your, your squadron. You're there for three years. You kick ass. You can, If you're good enough, you can get into a special ops community. Yeah. Uh, I was bummed, though, because all my friends are going down to Hurlburt, and I'm going off to um, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, or uh, Southern Pines, North Carolina, to be with Fort Bragg. Uh, down at um, uh, Pope Air Force Base. Right. Um, one of the things, now here's, here's, here's something that was a big wake-up call, and I forgot to mention, this is kind of a big deal. Um, so remember, all this was like, I was a civilian a year ago, and now I'm flying airplanes, uh, which, which was so weird. <laughs> and one morning, so I'd probably been on, on station for, I don't know, a month, and I would wake up in the morning, I would jog around the, the flight line. And uh, one morning, these T, uh, T, they weren't T-34s, T-37s were doing touch and goes on the, the uh, flight line right next to me. And right. so I'm, I'm jogging and there's probably six of them in the pattern and they're landing and taking off and landing and taking off. And as I get to the departure end of the runway, so that's where they, you know, they take off and they depart, uh, I hear boom. And then I turn and I look 
and there's a T-37 on its side, wing dragging on the ground, heading right towards me. I mean, I'm probably 300 yards from this thing, maybe 400 yards. So, you know, it was like one of those things like I wasn't thinking it was going to kill me, but I part of me was like, this might not be good. So it's, it's be good. It, it was a little freaky. And then the plane had hit a um, they have these like they look like volleyball nets that pop up. And oh, they, yeah. They catch airplanes. Dude, talk about a bad day. Um, the the net pops up. The aircraft hits it in the very spot where it triggers the ejection seat. So the pilot in the back seat, his name was Peter Johns. I looked him up because, I mean, it was my first wake-up call that this is a big boys game. He got ejected, in, and these aircraft aren't what we call zero zero. You You have to be at a certain altitude and a certain speed for your, your chute to deploy and you just survive. Uh, he got ejected and it looked like a rag doll on fire and he arced, uh, where he hit, it, it kind of, it, it, it hit the side of the aircraft. The aircraft went kind of off the runway and then just like a cannon, boom, this guy gets launched out of the, the aircraft over my head and then down about 200 yards into the, the gully next to me. And he's just fully engulfed. Um, it's crazy. So I'm like, what do I do? So I start running down towards him. And I mean, there's nothing you can do. Like, what, what am I going to do? I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Um, I just basically watched him burn alive. And I was like, holy shit, this is real. Like, this is, this is a dangerous job. People die, people die right in front of me. It was, it was a freaking total wake up call. And it, that, that incident matured me a lot as a person and as an aviator because like i said i was around my friends we were partying uh we were, we were living like the the top gun life you know and that sounds right. so cheesy to say but it really was we were just having fun and then that shit happened and i was like i mean i guess you can have fun but but you know people could die and uh he was one so i i wear a, a memorial bracelet and he's the first name i, I put on when i decided to wear one um, I always put his initials there, Peter Johns, because I don't know, I feel connected to the guy. I never met him, but I saw him die. And, and um, yeah, I just kind of, I, I always took that with me. So, yeah, um, I forget what made me go on that tangent, but we, um, I got slicks, wound up at Randolph, uh, not Randolph, um, Pope Air Force Base, and uh, went to my first operational unit. And that, you know, it, it's it's in a time of war. And, and my unit was ready to go um, for their next deployment. And I was like, oh, yeah, we're going overseas to Iraq. And the tactics guy comes to me because I'm a new guy. We have this, you know, we call them FNGs. You call them boots. You know, I have butter bars. Um, I don't know shit about my airplane. I don't know shit about tactics. I don't know shit about flying in the desert. I don't know shit about flying in Afghanistan. No one wants to be in the plane with that guy because he's going to, if someone's going to get you killed, it's going to be him. And I sit down, so they, they really hammer home tactics, flying, your job, and what it's like to fly in a combat, because they never really address that through training. They never right. really tell you that, um, oh yeah, in six months, there's gonna be people shooting at you. So here's your stressful job flying low level and having tanks fly out the back and troops and all that shit, but do that when someone also has an SA-7. And I sat down with the ta tactics guy, and he's showing me all these photographs of of the um the the surface to air missiles that they they uh, recovered from around iraq and, and bagram and on all those airfields and he's showing me like how they um figured out how to mortar the runway when aircraft are going down to try to get them to and i'm like wait wait people are trying to kill us <laughs> I'm like, right I'm like this is air force no one's trying to kill us thing. we just fly in and it, the other guys get shot at and he's like no man this is for real shit and know your stuff. Get into the vault, study their tactics um, because they're going to try to fucking murder you when you go over there. And I was like, wow, this is so it, I guess my I guess the, the short of everything I just said is that um, the Air Force initially was this crazy thing that I couldn't figure out how I got there to a wake up call very quickly, you know, that that this can kill you in peacetime. And then I get there and they're like, oh yeah. And they're going to try to kill you when we deploy. And I was like, wow, I never, it never dawned on me. Can't get away from it. So it's safe to say you've dealt with some trauma and then going from that, I would ask what kind of trauma you've experienced, but you kind of 
threw out a good little bit right there at the beginning. So how did it affect your day-to-day life having to see stuff like that? Yeah, I, you know what? So my therapist, and that's kind of a, uh, what do you got? Spoiler alert. Um, but my therapist was like, so, you know, it's not, it's not abnormal to, um, you know, deal with trauma. And I was like, deal with what? She's like trauma. And I'm like, I'm like, I, I don't have trauma. And, and she's like, you have a traumatic brain injury. You have post-traumatic uh, uh, stress disorder or post-traumatic yep. stress. And she's like, where do, you, wh- where do you think that comes from? Eating too many Skittles? And I was like, I know, but I never, <laughs> like, I'm not traumatized. And she's like, well, you are by definition. And I was like, I don't know. It's just a weird sort of way to look at it. I, I, I still have trouble balancing what that means. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you where kind of, so again, all my friends were down in Hurlburt and special ops and that's where I wanted to go. I mean, that's, I let my, my commander know I walked in and I was like, Hey, this is all cool and stuff. I love working with the 82nd airborne and the Delta force and all those freaking cool squirrely guys that are out here. My cool job, but I want to go special forces and, um, I want to leave the moment I'm able to leave. And he's like, all right, takes balls. But, uh, he basically said, be the best navigator. Um, and, and learn what that means uh, because, it, and it's probably the same in the Marines and the Army and stuff like that, but you can, you can be smart as shit, but you're not good at your job. You have to know how to play the role of a good aviator, of a teammate, um, of someone, of a leader, of someone that people can trust. And, and it's, a, it's a balancing game. Um, just because you ace your check rides doesn't mean you're going to get to special ops. You know, it takes a certain type of person. And I was like, all right, I can be that person. Um, so yeah, so that, that was always my goal. So we're out in, uh, I did three, three or four deployments, uh, back to back to back to back. Uh, it turned out to be, I don't know, uh, 18, no, 18 months, 14 months. No, I don't, dude, I don't remember. It was 18 months, say total overseas. And, uh, we were stationed everywhere. Uh, C-130 goes wherever. I mean, we would get tasked out to like Africa, um, to fly there for like a month and you'd just be in some little podunk airport and flying with people down there you could be up at it um uh what the hell's that base balad you could be at baghdad alias salem i mean it, it didn't really matter where you were because uh, you were just constantly flying in, in afghanistan or iraq um my first experience flying into the the sandbox another wake-up call uh co-pilot and me were both butter bars uh he might have just been a first lieutenant none of we had no combat hours and we're doing a, a short final into Baghdad. And I look out the window. And as I see this guy kind of just pop up, I'm looking at him. I'm like, I think he's got a rocket. And I'm like, there's no way this guy's shooting a rocket at me first day in a Baghdad. It's not going to happen. I don't see that. And as it's kind of this is playing out in my head, the worst place you could possibly be as an aviator or as a C-130 is full gear down, flaps down as slow as you could possibly be going within like a half a mile of the runway because if someone shoots at you, you have no energy, no power to maneuver. You're just going to get hit and you're going to die. That's it. That's it's the worst place you could possibly be. And um, so I look and as I'm about to say something, the co-pilot's like, look, <laughs> that's all he gets out of his mind. And this guy tries to launch this rocket at us and it, it's a failure to, I don't, I don't know about rockets. I mean, I don't know about these things and what happens or what, but it didn't, it basically burned in the, in the pipe. And then it popped and exploded and set this dude on fire. So this guy basically just blew himself up uh, and he goes running away on fire. And I'm like, what the hell did I just see? Welcome to Baghdad, dude. Somebody just on short final goes out and sets themselves on fire. It was like he had his dead to rights. Like, so I don't know. It's just one of those things that one of those war Something stories. Something working out for you or a little bit of karma coming his way? I don't know what it was, but when I when that happened um, – that's when I had a change in my brain. I was like, I kind of became a, a really, really legit type A person. Um, you know, we, the worst thing out in Iraq and Afghanistan, the worst thing, believe it or not, was the, the weather and near misses with other aircraft. That would kill you far, uh, knowing the, the C-130s and stuff, those would kill you way easier than, um, than ground fire and stuff because they can't, they, they rarely can knock a C-130 out of the sky. So, um, if my equipment wouldn't function, you know, I just became, I just kind of got that. We called it being spun up. I got really, really spun up, man. I was just like, 
every air, every flight, every flight through thunderstorms, every near miss with the helicopter, every surface to air fire, I just kept twisting and twisting and twisting and tightening me up a little bit more. And I guess it was a defense mechanism. I don't know what it was. Uh, you get out. So Natural reaction. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, you kind of get in that mindset and then you come home for whatever it was, six weeks, eight weeks, and they expect you to just return to normal and, and, you know, not let anything affect you. And then they turn around and they send you back out. It's the same shit. Right. Um, so the, you get, you get twisted a little bit tighter and a little bit tighter. So what do you do? You drink, you drink a lot. You start taking Ambien every single night because they hand it out like candy to sleep. Um, you start punching holes in walls. There's all these little warning signs that maybe you're not handling the stress as well as you should, you should handle it. Uh, yeah. So, so last, I mean, I could go on and aviators have this problem of telling almost like fish stories about their near misses and stuff. But, um, the last thing that happened to me was our, it was our last, uh, deployment. Uh, I was heading out and I was told, Hey, guess what, dude, you're going to Hurlburt. You got your, you got your, uh, AC one thirty slot. So I, I, that's it. I'm an air commando. I'm going to get the commando tab. I'm going down to Hurlburt, dude. I am freaking, I'm psyched. Um, also during this time, I'm stressed out of my gourd. Uh, you know, I'm becoming an instructor nav at this time. Uh, mission, um, God, what a commission commander. So you're just, the, the more hours you get, shit just starts piling on. I had probably 1,250 hours. I was the guy that I wanted to be though. People wanted to fly with me because I knew my job and I was friendly to my career. Like it just, I played the right game. And we were over... This was, I, I honestly, I couldn't remember. It was like February. I think it was February of 06. And we were flying into thunderstorms, really, really terrible thunderstorms. And the only thing I remember, the, and, and we could have been doing an invasive maneuver. I, I don't know, is I, waking up in the back of the aircraft, unable to speak, side of my face was numb, side of my body was numb. And the load master is picking me up and trying to strap me into a seat. And I'm like, two seconds ago in my brain, I was flying the aircraft. I was doing my navigator job. My head was in the, the, um, the radar. I'm picking through these thunderstorms. And suddenly, like, I don't know if you've ever been choked out in jujitsu or anything like that, where you, you kind of yep. wake up like you just woke up from a dream. And you're like, where, what? Where am I? Right and, back to it, yeah. Yeah, and I was like... So what, what happened? Where am I? They're like, we're trying to figure that out. I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, you, you said something on the radio. Uh, we couldn't hear you. And then suddenly you were gone. And I'm like, all right. right. And then he's like, and I looked and I found you at the bottom of the staircase. C-130 has like a flight deck and you're up about five or six feet in the air. And my, my nav station is about six feet beyond that. So somehow I made it from my nav station to the bottom of the stairs, completely unconscious. No recollection of this. Uh, and they're like, and we don't, we don't know what happened. Um, you, you gotta go see the flight doc. And I'm like, I'm freaking out. Cause I'm thinking I had a stroke or something. I'm like losing my shit. I'm like, how did I'm checking myself? Did I take a round? Like, I don't know what happened. I get struck by right. lightning. I don't know what happened. And, uh, and so I go, I get, I get to the, you know, the, we fly the mission out and I get back and they, I go to the, the CASIF or whatever they call that. And they're like, they're like, yeah, we don't know what happened, but you're not flying anymore. And I'm like, well, hey, woo, dude, I'm supposed Whoa, to be going, I'm supposed to be going to AC-130 <laughs> school. And they're like, you're not going anywhere. We're, we're medevacing you back to the States. And I went to my commander. I'm like, don't medevac me back to the States. Don't. And she's like, it's kind of out of my hands. Um, and I'm like, I, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm like, I can't. So somehow she pulled strings uh, and I stayed. I worked in a, a, a tactic shop for, I don't know, three or four months before we went home. But I got home and no one had any answers. EEG was normal. Um, uh, EKG was normal. These are all like tests they can run. MRI was normal. Blood levels were normal. They're like the, the, the flight doc who had never, the one that I had who had never um, uh, deployed, he, he wasn't, or I think it was a she, she wasn't an, an operations minded flight doc was like, Oh, this is administrative. Um, I don't know why you can't fly. And I'm like, well, you're telling me I can't fly. I think I can fly. And she's like, well, loss of consciousness. So I got pissed and I got worried because I don't know what this woman can do to me. She doesn't know me from a hole in the wall. And she thinks I'm an administrative issue. 
so she's like, well, we got to send you over to Womack um, and maybe they can figure something out. So I go to Womack, which is the, the army station down there at, or the army hospital down there at Fort Bragg. And they put me immediately. They hear my story. They send me over to psych and then I get full psych evaluation. And she's, I remember the doctor sits me down. She's like, you have PTSD, classic PTSD. I was like, well, no, I don't have PTSD. And she's like, yeah, you do. She's like, here's all the, all, you know, she's going through everything. And, and I'm like, I, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it up till probably a year ago. I'm like, well, that's not true. And she's like, well, it's in your medical record. So go, <laughs> you know, and this is what you have to do to stop or, or to, to recover. And this is an 06. And they didn't, in 06, they didn't want to touch PTSD with a 10 foot pole. They didn't know what to do with it. So they put, about it. they put me on all these medications. Um, I hated the medications. I didn't feel like myself. They, I couldn't fly on the medications. I ended up having to sit at a desk. I was the um, uh, executive, or an XO, a version of an XO in the Air Force, which is horrible. You're just sitting at a desk and you're dressed blues and you're freaking writing notes and, oh, it's horrible. And I wanted to fly and I was supposed to go to my special ops world. So I felt, I mean, I was just, I went from being the best at what I could be to being someone that if I saw them sitting at a desk, I'd be like, fucking weak, <laughs> weak. What's up, weak dude? Yep. And I'm like, I just beat the crap out of myself and it didn't help, right? I mean, drinking became more. Uh, Ambien, they're like, here's 30 days of Ambien and here's your nine refills. So it was like every single night just to go to sleep. Uh, that's it. And then they, they medboarded me. And then before I knew it, in fact, the week I was supposed to be at... Uh, 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 Herbert field or, or whatever their schoolhouse was, I was a civilian. And I was like, I'm at home and I'm like, what, what happened? Like I was supposed to be at the apex of my career and I don't know what I'm going to do. I have nothing. I have, there's no civilian navigator. I was I my history degree doesn't give me shit. What am I going to do? So I just, I just sat there. I remember I stayed in bed for like two weeks. I'm like, this sucks. This is horrible. This is, um, no, they, I had no, like, there was no transitionary. They told me, um, go to the VA when you get out and, um, it'll take you probably six months to get your benefits and, uh, go to the VA and establish care there. So I go over to the VA to establish care and I walk in with my medical records. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, I have PTSD. They told me to come here. They throw me in the emergency room in a psych eval, take away my cell phone, take away my belt. I'm like, what is going on? So I sat in there for, yeah, for like 18 hours. Well, six people evaluated me and they're like, are you, are you on a crisis? Or, and I'm like, there's no crisis. I, I'm here to establish care. So it, it, it was a terrible, it was a terrible way to leave the air force. I didn't getting into any sort of VA issue. Like I just, I was done with it. I was like, you know what? Air force didn't want me. I don't want them. I'm not a veteran. I'm not fuck it. I'm nothing. And, um, I eventually, it's a long story, but I eventually uh, applied to grad school to become a physician assistant. And I just became a physician assistant. I was an angry guy. Everyone in my class hated me. I'm sure. Cause they were all 24, 25, 23. And I'm like, screw these kids. They don't know what they're doing. And I'm just angry. Right. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't a good place to be. It wasn't a good, um, uh, I guess thing to go through. So after transitioning, you know, I, I we all deal with our trauma a certain way. Um, what do you mean? What'd you do to, besides going to school to be a PA? What'd you do to occupy your time? And how did you, actually address the things that you needed to regarding your trauma. Cause I know when a lot of us get out, a lot of us don't think we have that issue. I know I didn't when I got out, when I got out PTSD, what the hell is that? Is that some acronym that I missed in the military and come to find out it was an issue I had dealt with during deployment. So when you, again, when you got out, what'd you do to occupy your time? And besides being a, a PA, I, I, I quickly identified the fact that it wasn't healthy to be taking Ambien every night and drinking a lot every night. I, 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 I was, I had the wherewithal to realize this was self-medicating. Um, so I, I replaced that with literally beating the shit out of myself. I decided, cause I had always been a wrestler and everything. I decided I'm going to go into jujitsu. I've done jujitsu. I've done karate. I've done Muay Thai. I've done all these things, kind of a thing I, I like to do. And I absorbed myself into fighting. Uh, I mean, I was at the gym five days a week. Um, 
I was I was slated to have a my first mixed martial arts uh, fight. I think I was 32 at the time. Um, like I consumed myself with that or with schoolwork because PA school was hard. So I basically I didn't want to identify everything that led me up to having to make this change in my life. So instead of having to sit there and face it, I studied for, you know, eight hours a day and then went to the gym for four hours a day. And then I was just constantly going constantly, bam, bam, just, um, it, it just, I don't know. And, and I suppose like a, a psychologist could, could totally tear apart, like why I'm putting myself through jujitsu and getting choked out and, you know, breaking my nose. Right. And in, in one year I separated my shoulder. I blew up my MCL. I broke my nose. I severely bruised my nuts, uh, wound up in the hospital with that. One. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. I can't remember all the things that I busted up on me. And it was like, it's so obvious. It was so obvious. I was just beating the shit out of myself. Um, and just having someone else do it. And the week before I was supposed to go and fight, which is, it's a mixed blessing because uh, what ended up happening to me uh, with the TBI and all that, I, I, I mean, I was going to go fight and I, I tore my MCL, which is uh, one of the ligaments that holds your knee together. And I sat down and I remember sitting there and being like, I'm 32 or whatever. Uh, this is amateur. What am I doing? Like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, so let's right. say, I, let's say I do 10 fights. I'm not getting paid. I'm getting hit in the head. I have to study. I have a wife. I, I have a career that I'm going to work on. So I, I just left that. Um, now, that's one of the things, like, people who get into martial arts and jiu-jitsu and all that, I miss that every day of my life. Um, physically, I know it's not the right thing for me to do. So, you know, there's people who are missing legs and they can't do stuff. And, and it's, it's, you know, I so I can't do this. All right, whatever. Just move on. Uh, I find other ways to to, I guess, occupy myself with that. But yeah, I, I basically just self-medicated with staying busy. And then, and then, uh, this was probably a good five years because, you know, then we started having babies and then I got a job and it was going really well. Not addressing your psychological issues is really easy to do. The problem is when those issues stay deep within you, someone told me it's like a an onion, right? You can chop up an onion and it's going to suck. You're going to, tears are going to, it's going to burn your eyes. It's going to be very unpleasant. Um, is this how the freaking thing goes? You can chop the onion or you could put it in a bag and you just keep putting it in a bag and put it in the freezer or I mean the refrigerator and it's just going to spoil and get rotten. It's going to get really, really gross. And the day that you do open that up, it's going to be a hell of a lot worse than if you just chopped them up to begin with. I don't know. I heard some a metaphor, something like that. And it's so true because, um, I buried, I just buried everything. I didn't address anything. And, and one day driving into work, it just hit me. It was like, I, I can't even, it, it was almost as severe of a situation that I felt in the back of that aircraft. Like I couldn't drive. Um, I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't been talking to my wife about this, right? Cause I've been, I haven't talked to anyone about this. I got out. I never went to therapy. I just buried everything and now I'm stuck on the side of the road I don't know who to call I don't know I don't know how to drive I don't know how to get to work how am I supposed to go to work what am I supposed to do go in and see my secretary who again she doesn't even know I'm a veteran and I'm a mess like I, I can't open up to her what am I supposed to tell my wife oh guess what over the last 10 years I've been self-medicating with being busy and and you know I, I just I didn't know what to do I was literally stopped and Mike Stojic, I got in contact with him, the, the Revival 1869 guy. And uh, he was just like, he's like, dude, you got to get help. You got to address this shit. You know, this is, and, and I think the reason why it, it came out was I had started the, the podcast about, you know, I guess it was about two months ago or two months prior. And, um, and yeah, so it just talking to veterans and, and revisiting that stuff and then thinking about my experiences, it just peeled away enough layers that it was like, hey, dude, guess what? And just out of nowhere, it was just exploding. And I didn't like how that felt. And I knew that I had to learn how to get that stuff out because if I didn't, I was just going to self-implode because um, it's not a not a pleasant place to be uh, at all. Um, yeah. I also, part of staying busy too, is I, I started a podcast um, called Wait What If, and it was, it, it was a great experience, but it also taught me that I enjoy 
creating like creativity is something that I like to do. And, and I started that podcast and it did really well. I mean, it, it did it for, I think five years and a couple hundred episodes and it was just great. We had a, we had a great time with it, but I, I put it to bed, um, January of 2019 and, and took a few months off. And then I, I, I mean, gosh, I was, I was trying to figure out what to do. I remember I wasn't a veteran. I was not acting like a veteran. I wanted to get back into uh, working with veterans. And um, something was telling me to, to start becoming involved. And so I went up to Burbiz in, in D.C. And I knew I had this, this ability to do podcast. I didn't, know what, I didn't know what to expect. So I just walked around Burbiz and, you know, uh, meeting tons and tons of people. And I met Dan Mallard with the Reverend okay. Warriors. And uh, he starts telling me about irreverent warriors and, and, you know, I mean, just like anyone else who hears about it, I'm like, that's freaking awesome. I need to do this. And then it was like, I just dove in head first. Uh, my first interview, I think was Donnie O'Malley. Well, it was Dan Mallard. Then it was Donnie O'Malley. And I was like, I, this is for me. Like I working with veterans, telling their stories, this is what I need to do. And that's where 21 gun kind of came out. And I did, a, I don't know, probably three or four months on my own. And I'm like, I was interviewing a lot of irreverent warriors and I even did a live show in June, um, on the hike in Fayetteville. And I was like, I should just be their podcast. Like I should just pitch it and, and kind of be their voice in the, in the podcast world. So I pitched it and they're like, they're like, yeah, man, uh, we love it. Come on board, uh, do your thing. So, so yeah, that's where the 21 gun podcast came from and everything like this year, everything kind of fell into place. Right. Um, I had that massive panic attack. I started interviewing veterans, started getting involved in veterans. The, the panic attack made me realize I need to address those issues. So I got back into the medical, like I, I got evaluated, reevaluating me. Um, I'm going through the, whatever it is, the evaluation process. And they never gave me a TBI, uh, test or anything like that. And so at all, really never. Uh, loss of consciousness. Absolutely. The problem is no one, including myself, saw what happened to me. No one. The only thing that they knew and that I knew is I had I went several hours of, uh, of amnesia. I can't remember before the event. Can't remember after the event, um, ringing in my ears, uh, neck pain, back pain, chronic pain, fatigue, panic. None of this happened prior to that event. Right? So yeah, I was stressed out and that's, you know, that's, I guess, common for, for when you're flying operations in Iraq, in you know, 405, Um, but then suddenly this event happened and no one knew really like what, like obviously, well, that's not obvious. I guess what they put me through the protocol and they're like, dude, you're scoring off the charts. I mean, all this stuff is TBI. It's, it's TBI until we can prove otherwise. And, and then I got to thinking, I'm like, we were in thunderstorms. I don't strap in a navigator doesn't strap in. He's, I we walk around the cockpit and you're running radios and all that stuff. And we probably hit turbulence, which sent me flying down the stairs onto my head where the loadmaster saw me and dragged me into the back. It's the only logical explanation because PTSD doesn't give you loss of consciousness. No, uh, it does not. Yeah. Or all these side effects, all these weird things. And it, it totally made sense. Um, yeah. So that, so then I, um, uh, I got evaluated uh, through TBI and, and traumatic brain injury and through Dr. Mark Gordon and Millennium 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 Health out in uh, Encino, California. Uh, same guy that was on Joe Rogan and stuff. And I started going through his TBI yeah. protocol and dude, my life's changed uh, remarkably. So this year has been just, it's been crazy. It's, it's, it's. So what kind of impact did uh, River Warriors have on you, man? Uh acceptance right so i never wanted to tell people my story because i felt weak about it um right i get yeah well i get you know we we rib on each other and it's like oh here comes the air force guy and i get that that's fine i wouldn't i mean that's just part of it but there's part of me that's like i'm the air force guy i don't get tbi i don't get ptsd like what i don't get that um I mean, my therapist went through, I mean, we talked through a lot of the shit and a lot of the stuff we went through and, and she's like, she's like, dude, flying into an airfield where people are shooting at you. She's like, that's not normal, but getting shot at is why we signed up. But I don't know. It, it took, it's, it took me a lot to accept that what I did 
and I hate to use the term deserve because no one deserves it, but was deserving of a medical discharge for PTSD. And so I go to Reverend Warriors and I tell my story and I, and, and I think I was telling it to Alex Bratt. He might've been one of the first guys I was talking to and, and he's, his jaws wide open. I'm like, what? He's like, dude, that's fucking crazy. I'm like, what? And he accepted my story and I, I didn't have to prove anything. I was just, it was just what happened to me. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I was like, wait a minute. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to have this stuff that I'm working on. That's, that's part of, of running the gauntlet of combat, whether your job was a mortarman or a, um, cook in the kitchen. I mean, even we always joke about the guys who, um, claim PTSD when, you know, they worked at, you know, they heard, um, mortars dropping or whatever, but even those people, that's not a normal situation to be in. Okay. I get it. It's a traumatic event no matter what. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, and I know, all right, you're not on a mountainside in Afghanistan, you know, taking rounds. I, I get that. But, but one thing I learned from Dakota Meyer, he has this great, um, this video out and he's like, something that we do as veterans is we compare our trauma with each other for the good or for the bad. Like, screw you, dude. You don't know what type of day I'm having because my worst day is nothing like your worst day. And I, I, I kind of carried that on my shoulders, uh, walking, you know, especially dealing with, with civilians, right? I'm not going to allow myself to have trauma, but I do know that my trauma is worse than yours, right? It's just a shitty place to be. And as soon as you realize that, that it, you're not, it, it's not apples to apples. You're not comparing things like my secretary 50, I don't know, two or three year old woman, uh, mother, three kids. Who am I to say my, my, I've got this trauma and you, there's no way you can understand me. I don't know her. You know, I don't know if her, she watched her dog get killed five years ago and that had an impact on her. Right. And to her, that's just as traumatic as the guy who works at the air force gym in Balad and hears a round go off, I guess. Um, or me watching a guy with a SA seven burn up in the tube as he's trying to kill me. Right. There, there's it's everybody. It's so personal to every single person. And that's, um, it's redundant, I guess, but it's, it's just the way it is. So, and, and when you accept that, when you accept that you, you, you no longer, at least I don't treat myself as bad as I treated myself. What's funny is, you know, you worry about, I, I don't really tell war stories. I don't really, you know, especially cause I hang out with all Marines, um, maybe an army person sprinkled in here and there. So it's like, I don't want to tell my story cause what's my story. Right. I'm, I don't, you know, I, I can't compare to sitting on the side of a, like I said, a mountain in Afghanistan. Um, but then when you do tell the story, like if someone gets something out of me, they're like, Holy shit, man, that's crazy. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. It's this acceptance that because we haven't experienced it. That's yeah, the, yeah. that's the whole, Exactly. Like I could not imagine being in a freaking C-130, flying slow as hell, hoping to lay some rounds down, or even dropping to pick up um, KIA. Yeah. Having that that Iraqi on the edge of the field or something, waiting to shoot you down, or waiting for you to take off because you know you ain't going that fast. Yeah. And you know that thing's coming right at you. And even when it even for in your case it didn't go off, luckily. Yeah. I couldn't imagine that that would blow my freaking mind and, and not Literally. being able to not being able to shoot back. That's the other thing, right? I had a nine millimeter work. on my hip. What am I going to do in an aircraft? Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that was the big thing. And the other thing too, um, I mean, I was lucky enough for them to, to give me this opportunity to be the podcaster because it, you know, I, I'm a PA. Um, it's not who I am. It's the, a career I chose. Uh, it's a cool job. I pay as well. That's pretty much why I do it. It affords me time with my family. Uh, I'm a podcaster. I'm a storyteller. I'm a journalist. I got my credentials. I got my, did I tell you I got my journalist credentials? No, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm a member of the National Press Club. Uh, it's funny, but I mean, that's who I consider myself. Uh, the other job pays the bills. This is, this is my, this is who I am. The old podcast, I, I used to worry that I was wasting my time because, I mean, it paid for itself. And, and every now and then I would get, a, you know, some money and stuff from it. But it was it was all leading up to this. It was training for this. And now I'm able to take something and create it and document people's stories and and show other people. Right. And, and you know, I picture my audience being who I was maybe three years ago um, where I wasn't sure about my experiences. I wasn't sure about 
myself, my, what I was as a veteran, what, you know, what, what, what we did in Iraq, uh, all that stuff was just floating in my head. And I figured if I can take just everyday people, everyday veterans, which we, you know, we get, you know, like Rudy Reyes and stuff on, but we also have everyday folks on to be able to relay their stories and their feelings and their struggles and to normalize it and to say, you know, uh, drinking, uh, you know, scotch with Ambien to sleep at night is something that you're ashamed of. And why would I ever talk to anyone about that? That's a shameful, shameful thing. And I have to, I have to put that deep inside. And then you talk about it, you bring it out to the open and someone else hears that and they're like, Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. I, I would, I have to drink so much just to sleep at night. And you're like, you just, it normalizes it to the point where you're like, I'm not some, I'm not some, some, damaged weak person but there's a bunch of us that are experiencing this and and so that you know that's probably the biggest thing i got out of it and and that's where you know that's that's what keeps me going uh i i this podcast will be here until i can't talk anymore and and i'm never going to run out of veterans to talk to um anyone is welcome on the show and people don't realize that i, I talk to so many people who are like well i don't have a story to tell I'm like yeah you do you just don't i this is proof positive. I don't want to ever tell my story. And I decided to tell you guys this um, because everyone has a story. We got to get to know the the face and then the voice behind this, you know, when people come to hikes, when I, when you first came to my hike in Raleigh, you're like, hi, I'm Kevin. I'm doing an interview. I'm like, I have no idea who you are. I (laughs) I had no clue. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, I'm leading this thing. And this guy wants to interview me. I just figured it was another veteran just doing their thing. And that's how I heard about 21 gun through you coming up to me. So um, with that being said, what do you feel has been the biggest impact for you coming to a hike, being a part of the hikes and being able to tell someone's story? Uh, well, there's two things with that. First one is uh, I did back to back hikes where I was working, right? I was, I was interviewing people and stuff like that. And I, I didn't experience the hikes the way I could have. And then I went to the, the, um, Washington hike and the, I did, I put my microphone down and I, I, I got some things, but I was like, no, I'm just going to experience it as, as a person. I mean, as a veteran. And, um, you know, what I got for that is just, it's just allowing people in, you know, um, I'm still working on, on, you know, I, I don't even like to say the word, but I'm still working on addressing my feelings like with my family, right? The, the story that I tell, I just told, you know, the closest people in my life would be like, I kind of knew the beginning, but I had no clue about that whole middle section because I, I never talked about it. I know I never cared to, because again, I felt like it was a weakness, but I mean, the biggest thing right there is just normalcy is that we all go through shit. And then I start talking to people, um, you know, who, who never deployed and they're going through shit and I'm learning like, holy crap, you know, this, this thing, this military experience if you don't handle your emotions correctly can turn around and kick your ass. Right. And it's, it's in these weird, it, they all have different ways. Like the guy I was talking to who didn't deploy had all the survivor's guilt because you know, his buddies went and he didn't. And I don't remember if you know, he knew someone that was killed or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I wouldn't want to carry that with me. Um, so yeah, I mean, everyone, and that it goes all, it always goes back. Everyone has a story. Everyone has, if you're listening to this now, you have something to say, even though you don't think you do. And it could be, you know, just, uh, you know, an organization that you found or how you got into school or how you, you, you know, stop drinking or, you know, whatever it is, it's there, you know, and, and you just have to, you have to trust yourself and you have to realize that you're not going to be judged. Um, you know, and the biggest judge, what's that? Definitely not by this group. There's no judgment here. Yeah. I mean, you judge yourself way more, right? I'm always worried that, like I said, being the Air Force guy, everyone's going to be like, oh, shut up, Air Force. But guess who's saying that? Me. I'm saying it to myself, right? I'm saying, you know, you're a pussy. You, you know, you couldn't, you, you never got into the the special forces. You know, you had your billet, but you, um, you know, you were weak and you felt, I mean, I'm kicking the shit out of myself. Not anymore. I'm in therapy and all that stuff. But I kick the shit out of myself way more than anyone else could. And and if someone wasn't, I'd be like, well, they're just saying it in there. You know what I mean? It was just, it's total bullshit in your head that you have to, you have to get out and 
I, I don't know what the term would be. I just guess work it out. You have to work it out. And you have to realize that you've been lying to yourself. Everything that you say pretty much is a lie. And you're believing that lie. And every day you tell yourself that lie, it becomes more and more of who you are. And the next thing you know, you know, I went 10 years thinking I was a big pussy because I lost consciousness. We don't know why. And then I suddenly wasn't able to do the job that I wanted to do. So every single day, um, I felt like I was, you know, on, on Saving Private Ryan when Upham was on the stairs and he didn't go up the stairs to, yeah. right? How mad were you watching that when Upham wouldn't just go up the stairs and save his buddies? And I was yelling, get the fuck up. I know, I know. And and that whole, my 10 years, I felt like I was up on the stairs. I felt like my experiences were akin to that. And I mean, think about living your life like that, like feeling like you were a coward when you know, if, if you just talk to people, they would, instead of calling you a coward, they would call you a brother. You know what I mean? And, and all the shit that you think that other people think, or that your experiences that, that you think meant one thing most likely didn't at all. And it's just the way we are stupid little human brains. Um, it's how they break up experiences and try to figure out trauma and, and yeah, so, and it got me into therapy and it got me into all that stuff and got me into TBI protocol. And, and now I'm, I'm a better person, a uh, way better person than I was even a year ago. Well, good. Because that's, that's usually the, the direction we try to go to. What's that, that saying where we are, we are our own worst critics. Yeah. I know I was when I got out, man, I was, I told my friends I'd always be there. I mean, I'll go on deployments, you know, we'll be having each other's backs and then being stuck and, you know, trying to walk again with a busted back and a busted head, it's it sucks. Like, I, I especially being a Marine, you know, I mean, you go from supposed to be the best of the best, few in the proud, and now you're getting you're getting out. And it's like, are you not good enough? And deployed or not, you're good enough. You still signed the dotted line. You still had a chance. You still could have had that moment. Yeah cook, supply, whatever, and being on the front line. There is nobody whose service doesn't count. Everybody's service counted. And that took me a while to, to understand that, that I had to be a part of that. And the same for you, man. Just because you're Air Force doesn't mean you didn't do your time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's it's an important thing to to realize is that, that we're, we're all in it. And you're right. No matter what your job was, you know, you're part of a part of fraternity that a very small percentage of people belong to. And what's amazing is you can, you can find someone who's 89 years old that served in Korea and someone that's 70 years old that served in Vietnam and someone that's 50 years old that served in the first Gulf war. And then, you know, someone that's 20 that just came back from their first deployment to Afghanistan. And you all have something in common, you know, and, and sure. All right. Wasn't the frozen chosen. Um, thank God. Uh, but but the experiences were there and we're all, we're all brothers and, and sisters in this. And, and yeah, and you, you don't deny yourself that, right? I, I, who knows what I could have done over the last 10 years if I just sucked. Well, see, I'm not going to beat myself up. And I was going to say, if I just sucked it up and yeah, got help, but yeah, you can't, you can't do that. Cause it's, uh, it's a waste of time. It's, it's someone told me worrying is like sitting in a rocking chair, right? It gives you something to do, but you're not going anywhere. And, and right. it's the same with, with, if you're not addressing the issues that are that, you know, you have, everyone knows they have them. <laughs> if you think you're perfect, think again, just listen to your, what to do is listen to your dialogue with yourself throughout a day and be like, um, be like, would, would you talk to your child the way you talk to yourself? You know, and probably not. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, <laughs> that's, probably that's such a wake up call when people realize that, um, because you know, you are someone's child, you are someone, you are a, uh, a person, right? A living, breathing person that is here and you deserve to, to experience life and you deserve to, um, you know, be present and to accept things that happen and some things are shitty and some things are wonderful. And, you know, there's, uh, just learn to accept them and learn to accept them fit at their face value. You know, don't hide from them. Some things are painful, man. I still, I have a therapy session tomorrow. I freaking hate therapy. I hate you and most of us. Oh, it sucks. It's just 
Cause you sit there and they look at you and then you're, and I look at, I know I'm uh, dude, boot camp kind of sucked, not in the air force, but whatever things suck. Right. So if you're thinking, Oh, Kevin said it sucked. Yeah. I'm not going to go. No, no, no. You still got to go because the, the payoff is so much better. You know, you become a better person and you don't go, you can't, you can't, you can't heal, man. Yeah. And yeah. you know, being down to the wire, last thing I have for you is, uh, where do you see yourself at the end of the day? And especially going with the podcast. Who knows, man? I, I enjoy the interviews. Um, this year, you know, we, we've, we've done some experimentation with the podcast. I, I love doing live shows. I love getting irreverent warriors involved. Um, I think what we'll do is grow the site and, um, kind of make it more cause right now it's kind of all over the place. You're, you're going to get an interview one week. Um, you might get uh, a live episode with with the Reverend Warriors on the next week. Uh, I think that the shows will be split up, um, and and we're still going to be doing. We're going to involve more Reverend Warriors. We're going to have a Reverend Warrior um, uh, correspondence because I want to hear from other people. You know, I can't make it to California. I can't make it to uh, Las Vegas, uh, but there's going to be people there, and they have stories. So if I can get correspondence to to submit stories, we're just going to grow it. And and I think the biggest thing you know, if you could boil it down is it's a documentation of our experiences and it's a way for us to, you know, when we're not on hikes to still connect and to still st- remember that the key is to realize that these are shared experiences, you know, and, and when you talk about them, every episode reaches somebody. And that's the coolest thing. I get emails and uh, my best email was one guy was like, I, I never felt normal. I called the crisis hotline and now I listen to your show. And I was like, damn right that's it there you go i did my job last year just for that one email so so yeah i mean that and then where do i see it i mean who knows who knows uh i'm never stopping this uh even if four people listen at least i'm documenting the stories of veterans and that maybe my kids in 40 years will be like holy shit look dad's got 500 interviews you know on his website of veterans from Vietnam all the way up to who knows, you know, when the next 20 years, the wars will, will pop up, but yeah. And then, you know, just keep plugging at it. Well, like you said, man, everybody's got a story and this is yours. That's kind of, kind of why we wanted to get you on here. Yeah. You know, a few of us name drop, you know, Russell Oxley trying to figure out, man, we gotta, we gotta get to know the guy behind the mic. You know, you can't, you can't have, you can't have your Joe Rogans and your Ross Patterson's without knowing who they are. <laughs> You never know who you are, man. Yeah. Pre- I definitely appreciate you coming on and giving us the uh, the chance to get to know you, man. It's, yeah. I appreciate it. It's, yeah. I mean, I didn't want to do it. Uh, I really, really didn't want to do it. Uh, my therapist said I should do it. You guys said I should do it. So here it is. And uh, you know what? At the end of it, I don't feel like I, I used to, if I told my story, I just kind of got a weird feeling in my stomach. And I was like, I don't want to tell this. People don't want to hear this. I don't want to. And, you know, after I just told the story, I feel fine. I'm going to go and watch TV and maybe have a White Claw. <laughs> I can't go wrong with White Claw. I got a bunch in the fridge. Um, but, yeah, man, with that, I appreciate it. You know, a little couple shout-outs to UC Valor and, you know, 21 Gun on Facebook. And, you know, I'll let you do your little outro. There you go, man. Awesome, dude. All right. Thanks, man. Take it easy, brother. Set the-